Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. got a little unfinished business from last fortnight's episode, so I'm revisiting this older episode, having given it a serious rewrite. Last fortnight we discussed the Black Hand organizations that predated the Mafia. This time, let's look at how the mob we've all come to know through the gangster films arrived in America. But before we do that, I need to spend a couple of minutes on hats. There's a popular myth that states the 35th President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, killed the hat. Setting aside resurgences in hat wearing in recent years, and no, we're not talking about that orange guy today, there is a kernel of truth to this. A quick glimpse of his inauguration, January 20th, 1961. It's noticeable Kennedy, Vice President Lyndon Johnson, and Richard Nixon were all bareheaded, surrounded by a sea of top hats. People commented this was how the new guard rolled, and many men followed suit. Milliners complained this was the death knell of their profession, and hat shops across the nation closed. But this was only part of a wider picture. Like that gross orange guy, Kennedy, Nixon, and Johnson going hatless was more a symptom than a cause of change. As early as 1923, newspaper articles reported a growing dislike of hat wearing among the young. World War II also had a measurable impact. In one post-war survey by the Hat Research Foundation, which asked the hatless why they no longer wore a hat, One in five respondents claimed some bullying officer yelling at them for not wearing their hat during wartime was the main factor. As civilians, no one was ordering them to wear a hat. Also, less people worked outdoors, so needed a hat less. Popular culture was full of singers with quiffed hair, all ducktails and pompadours. As the black power movement came to prominence, well, so too came the afro. Then there was those four British kids with the mop tops who took the world by storm on February 9th, 1964. There were, of course, a slew of other reasons why hats were less popular. Car culture, taking off in a big way post-World War II, cut down exposure to the elements when going out to work, shop, or play. Similarly, improvements in air conditioning in offices and other large buildings saw a decline in hats, scarf, and glove use. And finally, I should mention they're less of a cultural marker now. Pre-war, high-powered moguls wore top hats. Working men wore flat caps. And this was kind of a uniform. With all the other factors in play, this element of hat wearing got a bit lost. Other markers of social capital taking its place. In this day and age, I struggle to think of too many of our most wealthy and powerful even wearing hats. Well, well, there is that orange guy we won't mention today. But again, he's not the hat-wearing fascist we're talking about today. But it is fair to say, once upon a time, hats were taken far more seriously. 
mess of a man's hat he may just throw down over it. Take for example Lee Shelton. Shelton was a gambler, a gangster and a pimp, whose sartorial eloquence was a sight to behold. On Christmas Day 1895, Shelton sauntered into St. Louis's Bill Curtis Saloon, adorned in a black dress coat, a high-collared yellow shirt beneath a red velvet waistcoat. He wore grey, striped slacks, pointy-toed shoes and jewellery aplenty, a cane with a glistening gold cap, and most importantly, a white Stetson hat. In the saloon that night, his rival, Billy Lyons. The two men put rivalries aside and had a few drinks, till talk of politics got the better of them. First Shelton grabbed Lyons' hat, caving it in, then Lyons grabbed Shelton's Stetson. Lyons drew a knife, Shelton a gun. Lyons' murder by that bad man, Stagger Lee, became the stuff of legend, giving life to dozens of songs, prison toasts, poetry, and even a breed of badass movie anti-hero. Think Youngblood Priest on Superfly, or Jules in Pulp Fiction. And however you feel about Stagger Lee, everyone understood you don't mess with a man's hat. Then there was the Great Straw Hat Riot of 1922. In 19th century big city America, it was understood, though rarely discussed, the straw boater hats that were wildly popular among young men should never be seen in the big city. This unwritten law was relaxed at the turn of the 20th century, but only for summer. New York stockbrokers, stevedores and sanitarians could wear their boater hats until Felt Hat Day, September 15th. After this, you needed to leave the straw hat at home. If you were seen wearing a straw hat, you risked it being knocked from your head and stamped flat in front of you. This tradition got out of hand on September 13th, 1922, when a gang of youths got started two days early in Lower Manhattan among the working class folk. This escalated into a series of running battles over several days. Reports were made of at least one gang with a pole with a nail on it to skewer any hats they saw. Several young gangsters were arrested. One victim lost an eye. And one presiding judge, suitably named Peter Hatting, made the call one has the right to wear a straw hat any damn time they like, even in January if they wished. All of this is to say, I'm working towards a tale of a massive overreaction, leading to global, long-lasting ramifications, which, strangely, may have seemed a little less unreasonable to your average Joe on the street at the time. Last fortnight, we mentioned how the island of Sicily was just the kind of place which breeds cells of local partisans with a deep distrust of authority. This was due to a merry-go-round of oppressive conquerors. The island was perfect for agriculture, was strategically important and a beautiful place to live. From Roman times onwards, a large number of mostly North African Berber slaves were brought in, setting the pace for all those working the land. I won't rehash it all, but if you haven't yet, please check out the Black Hand first. Now, I did particularly zero in on the reign of Charles I of Anjou, 
also king of Naples. In 1282, one of his soldiers raped and murdered a Sicilian woman, leading to a large number of cells of Sicilians rising up against the French, killing 4,000 of them and expelling them from their land. This was the first indication to the world at large that there was anything like a mafia in Sicily. These Sicilian Vespers, who may or may not have coined the phrase mafia there and then, were a collection of like-minded locals who banded together to oppose cruel behaviour and disrespect from the colonisers. Well, these groups well preceded the War of the Sicilian Vespers and continued well beyond that. They joined up with Giuseppe Garibaldi's Red Shirts when they landed in Sicily in 1860. 2,000 mafiosi fought alongside the Red Shirts, expelling the Bourbons. The Mafia were instrumental in the establishment of an Italian nation. By now, this was the name these groups went by. A popular play in Italy in 1863, in Mafiosi di la Vicaria, introduced the phrases Mafia and Mafioso to the common lexus for the rest of us. Now, I also mentioned the power vacuum that arose from the 1870s onwards. Now, this increase in violent crime, particularly of violent robberies by highwaymen, was our first indication the Mafia themselves had turned to crime. But they were playing the law on both sides. They became criminal and enforcer. A number of capo also become extremely rich and powerful in this climate. These were generally not the guys fleeing to America because life was too good where they were. Now a small handful of bona fide mafioso did leave for America. In the last episode we mentioned Giuseppe the Clutch Hand Morello, the nephew of the Don of Corleone. He was charged with killing a man, so at some time between 1892 in 1894, he fled for the USA. His tale is worth a closer look at some time, but suffice to say, he set up a number of rackets in New York, which would seem very familiar to us now. His ruthlessness. He personally ordered more than 30 men stabbed to death, stripped naked, and then crammed into barrels, was excessive by black hand standards. Morello, later in his life, bought a pig farm. I'm sure everyone can imagine what happened there. And saw his family morph into the first of New York's five families, the Gambino family. But back home, you have the likes of Francesco Cuccia. Cuccia used his power and influence to become both mayor of the town of Piana dei Gricci and the mafia kingpin by the 1920s. Unfortunately for Don Francesco, the 1920s also saw the rise of the man known as Il Duce. Benito Mussolini was born in 1883 to socialist parents. He was named after Benito Juarez, the left-leaning president of Mexico, who ran the nation immediately following the disastrous reign of the Emperor Maximilian. Benito was a staunch socialist himself, a renowned journalist and a public intellectual until he had a falling out with the left in 1914. He was reading a lot of Friedrich Nietzsche, particularly Thus Spoke Zarathustra. God was dead, which to Benito meant he was free to put his moral compass in a drawer somewhere, and do whatever the hell he felt like, so long as it furthered his cause. 
The more he stared into the abyss, the more Mussolini became convinced liberalism and individualism had led Italy down the wrong path. He dreamt of moulding Italy into a new society, based on an imagined ancient Rome, no less syllogistic than that orange guy's imaginary 1950s America, but we're still not talking about him. Order, discipline, and hierarchy were the words of the day. Extreme corporatism was essential. His belief the modern-day plebeian needed to give their all, unquestioningly, to their job, was much admired by many American one-percenters and British aristocrats at the time. Ignoring anything beautiful about Italy's past, Mussolini aspired to do one better than the poet Gabriele D'Annunzio, briefly Duce of the Regency of Carnaro, a proto-fascist state which existed in Fiume, Dalmatia, in 1920. Like his hero and role model, he saw Italy as an expansionist power, out to regain lands it once ruled over. Mussolini was a deplorable racist man, and though less specifically anti-Semitic than Hitler, his treatment of ethnic minorities set a standard for the early Nazis. As any fascist, Mussolini's phrase, Benito believed in extreme, unquestioning nationalism, well, so long as he was the guy in charge, and in isolating and punishing any and all dissenters. He insisted a woman's place was in the kitchen, and the LGBTQI plus community's place was on prison islands like San Domino, Lampedusa, and Ustica. But in short, the man stared too long into the abyss, and when the abyss stared back, it saw an amoral ghoul with an insatiable will to power. Unfortunately for the world, his words found an audience in the dissatisfied World War I veterans who coalesced around him as his black shirts. Many of these black shirts had fought in the Arditi, Italy's elite troops in World War I, and wore a distinctive fez hat we've all come to know, thanks to another man. With a ludicrous promise to resurrect the Roman Empire to make Italy great again, Mussolini and 30,000 black-shirt thugs marched on Rome in October 1922 and demanded the government resign immediately and appoint him leader. Terrified, they did so. Fast forward to 1924. Benito, a minority leader, stacked the cards in his favour via the Acerbo Law, which replaced proportional representation in elections with a system that ensured the party with the most votes got two-thirds of the votes by default. With a two-thirds majority, he was free to do whatever he wished. He went about enacting his cruel policies. But first, he planned a series of public rallies throughout the nation. In May 1924, Benito Mussolini arrived in Piana del Greci, with a large security detail in tow. His first port of call was a meeting with Mayor Francesco Cuccia. The two men made small talk till Cuccia leaned towards El Duce and whispered in his ear, You're with me. You're under my protection. What do you need all these cops for? Mussolini was taken aback by this. How imprudent to think a mafioso could offer him protection. Cuccia similarly felt insulted that Mussolini refused to dismiss his large police escort. 
The two men parted ways, each man already plotting revenge for the perceived slight. Kuchia was the first to up the ante, ordering all but a handful of villagers to stay away from the piazza during Mussolini's speech later that day. Il Duce preached his gospel of hate to a group described as around 20 village idiots. The large public square was otherwise deserted. This PR disaster might have been swept under the rug, were it not for another incident a few days later. Picture, if you will, another piazza. This time, it is full of inquisitive villagers. There is a carnivalesque atmosphere, that buzz in the air you get when large groups gather together for an event. Many of these people are dissatisfied with their lot in life, and probably not unlike the crazies who show up for that other guy's rallies. Although I doubt Mussolini had a fedora-wearing financial services manager, whom the crowd were convinced was John F. Kennedy Jr. reborn. This place is the fertile ground Mussolini needs to plow, if he hopes to declare himself dictator outright. So, picture if you will, the self-styled strongman in full regalia, on his head that trademark black fez, worn by the elite Arditi shock troops who follow him, just to underpin his tough guy cred. There's a hushed silence, all eyes on Il Duce. Any moment now, the tough guy is going to feed their rage and indignation. He will also give them answers, for they are the greatest people, brought low by minorities, people who believe in kindness, and those who believe in a rule for the people, by the people. Ilduce clears his throat. Just as some fleet-footed mafioso skips past his wall of cops, hot-foots it onto a podium, and swipes Mussolini's hat from atop his head. In that moment, the strong man is laid bare. His police escort are dumbstruck as the mobster bolted out of the town square. I imagine a gasp of horror from the crowd, then many of them bursting into peals of laughter. So needless to say, Mussolini was furious. On 3rd of January, 1925, Benito Mussolini dropped all pretense that Italy was still a democracy. The fascist dictator, his hands already bloodied by the murder of several prominent socialists, made the eradication of the mafia a top priority. He gave a local thug and police officer named Cesare Mori the power to do whatever necessary to destroy the mob. Mussolini telegrammed Mori, your Excellency has carte blanche. The authority of the state must absolutely, I repeat, absolutely, be re-established in Sicily. Should the laws currently in effect hinder you, that will be no problem. We shall make new laws. Mori took this to heart, arresting hundreds of mafiosi for anything from associating with known criminals through to murder. They couldn't go outside without being harassed for some crime, alleged or otherwise. Mayor Cuchia was an early arrest. Cuchia and his brother were both charged with the murder of two socialist activists a decade earlier and sentenced to lengthy prison terms without trial. Thousands of mobsters did get their day in court, however, where they were displayed in iron cages for all to see. 
1,200 mafiosi were jailed for a range of offences, real and imagined. A large number of liberals and leftists in Sicily were also jailed as suspected mafia. Now, picking up on last fortnight's tale, Don Vito Cascaferro, the suspected mastermind behind the murder of Joseph Petrosino, was charged with a historic murder in June 1930. He got a trial with an iron cage, as Iron Prefect Mori wanted to make an example of him. On the 69th charge to be held against him in his lifetime, he was finally found guilty of something and sentenced to life imprisonment. The only words he uttered in his defence were, Gentlemen, as you've been unable to obtain proof of any of the numerous crimes I have committed, you've been reduced to condemning me for the only one I never committed. While in jail, he shared with others the only man he had killed by his own hand was Joseph Petrosino. Although he was one of a number of people who have done so over the years, so maybe not to be taken too seriously as a trigger man. His ultimate fate is murky, but there is a possibility he died of dehydration after the prison was cleared of everybody but him in preparation for the Allied invasion of Sicily in 1943. Mussolini's purge did not bode well across the Atlantic. The USA were well on their way to contain the Black Hand organizations, who had been operating since the 1890s. The Provenzanos of New Orleans and the Morellos of New York were still a problem, and it turns out a sign of things to come. The Mafia did very well for themselves in the wake of a power vacuum left by the liberation of Sicily. By fleeing to a land with a similar power vacuum and its crime networks, they became bigger than U.S. steel by the 1960s. The USA had tightened its borders via the National Origins Act of 1924. It must have felt pretty sure Petrosino's lists would protect them from any mobsters arriving at Paris Island. But gangsters snuck in regardless, mostly via the ferries which ran day-trippers back and forth from Cuba. To add to this, the USA gave the mob the perfect pathway to massive growth and prosperity. On January 16, 1919, partially of the belief that such a law would help reduce poverty, and largely through the rallying of religious institutions, American politicians ratified the 18th Amendment. This banned the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcohol in the country. The National Prohibition Act, better known as the Volstead Act, was written to law in October 1919, giving law enforcement the authority to enforce the liquor ban. As America was thirsty, and many otherwise law-abiding Americans recognized the legislation as idiotic, organized criminal gangs suddenly had a large market to cater to. This was a boom time for the likes of Joseph Bonanno, a 19-year-old Sicilian kid who fled Mussolini's purges and snuck into New York via Havana, Cuba. The nephew of the Don of Castellamere del Golfo, Sicily, he found a home in Salvatore Maranzano's crime family. These rapidly gentrifying criminals would eventually expand to the point where they went to war with one another over their territories. 
the Castellamarese War of 1930-31. A lot of the moustache peats, the more old-school mobsters, who didn't believe in doing business with the Irish or Jewish gangsters, were wiped out in these wars, leaving a number of young Turks, many of whom were refugees from Mussolini's wrath, free to organize the five families we all know today when we think of the mob. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice. Share the episode, as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.